Did you know that they give out rose growing, comp there's rose growing competitions around the world, like in the country, like my, uh, my wife's aunt has entered many of these and won awards and prizes. And they, they, they look at things like uh, the vitality of the flower and the, the type of uh, leaves, what they look like, what the blooms look like, uh, the floral impact. That's something I've never heard of until I did research this this week. But through the soil and the pruning and all these things, through the shaping of the gardener, the rose becomes more than it could become by itself, right? I mean, because when a rose is just a rose by itself, is it going to grow a flower? Yes, it will look nice. But will it be a championship-level rose? Will it go beyond what it was just in its natural state? But with the help of an outside source, with the help of a gardener shaping and molding it, it achieves a greater level of success so that it even attracts a crowd, the smell of it just blows people away, like it blesses people simply because a gardener shaped it and molded it to be more than it could be before. In a sense, the rose is dependent on the gardener. It's dependent on the work of that person to make it be more than it could be by itself. People today, we don't really like the word dependent, especially in America. We celebrate independence uh, and so when we talk about being dependent, it can make us think of things like I'm, I'm weak or I don't have what it takes. I don't really want to admit that. But in reality, the more we're dependent on the gardener, the better off we are. But we have this mindset of let's do more, let's achieve more, let's get more, and I'll produce my own fruit, right? I'll do it myself. I don't need to be dependent on anyone to help me do that. Most of us don't want to be just a branch, right? We want to be more than that. We don't want to wait. This week, I was inspired by our friend in the video because I have a rose plant in my yard, so I decided to prune it. And look at this. This looks pretty menacing, actually. But uh, this wasn't bearing any fruit. It didn't have any roses on it, so I chopped it off. And I followed his instructions. Hopefully, I did not kill uh, my plant. But, um, you know, this thing could try as hard as it wanted to make a rose, and it won't. It could go and try and pop one out of the top like a magician's wand or something, but it's just not going to happen. If it's not connected to the plant, it's not going to do anything. It's not going to grow. You're not going to see the fruit. A deep branch, a dead branch, is going to reproduce nothing. It's never going to happen. Let me be careful with this as I put this down. Because if it's not connected to the vine, it's never going to grow. What if spiritual growth in our lives was just a simple, very simple, as just abiding, just staying connected, waiting, being dependent? What if spiritual growth was just that simple of just staying connected to allow yourself to be cultivated, to allow yourself to be dependent on a gardener and to see that when you do that, spiritual growth will just happen. Fruit will be born, not by our own merit, but by the work of of God. On Monday nights, I take my son to basketball. He goes to the CP3 Basketball Academy in Winston-Salem. And so I drop him off, and he goes in the gym for an hour, and then I might go run an errand or something. But typically, I use an app on my phone called Lectio 365. I highly recommend you download this app because it's guided prayers. It's, it's audio, or you can read it. They read scripture. They've got sort of meditative music, and they're British so it sounds more spiritual, you know? Like when British people read the Bible, it just feels more holy. Because if like, if here in the South, if I read the Bible like this, it just doesn't sound as like, you know, 
religious. So there, but it's, it's a wonderful app. And uh, I'll walk around and I'll listen to it. And it very much feels like abiding. Like you're just, you're just being present. You're just listening. It, and in the moment, it feels like you're doing nothing. But in fact, you're doing the most important thing you could do with your time. And a day without that, to me, feels much less spiritual. And I, I found myself looking forward to Monday nights. You find yourself looking forward to those moments when you are abiding in him. So let's look at John chapter 15. Just read these words of Jesus with me. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine grower. He removes every branch in me that bears no fruit. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes to make it bear more fruit. You've already been cleansed by the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me as I abide in you. Just as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Those who abide in me and I in them bear much fruit. Because apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, every time in the Bible, in the New Testament, we see Jesus use an I am statement. Every time, the Greek there is ego, a me. Ego, of course, means I, a mean. A me is an operative verb to be. And he's saying, and it really, the the English should be italicized. Because he's stressing those words in the Greek. So when we read it, read it like I am, or I am the gate. I am the way. I am the true vine. He's stressing that. And when he's not just saying, I am a vine, I am the vine, he's saying, I'm the true vine. And you think, well, then what's the untrue vine? Like, what's, the, what's, he, what's he getting at here? To the audience back then, the Jewish audience, they knew exactly what Jesus was saying. Because the nation of Israel has always used the vine as an image of who they are as a people. If you went into the temple, if you could actually have visited it, when you would walk into the main rectangular building, you would see a 90-foot-tall gold vine on the wall made of gold because it represented the nation of Israel, the fruitfulness of God. So the, the grapevine is a p- prominent symbol of the people. You see this in Psalm 80, 81, where the psalmist writes, you brought a vine out of Egypt, you drove out the nations and planted it, you cleared the ground for it, it took deep root and filled the land, The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. See here, God's people is described as a vine being sent out of Egypt. God planted them in a new land and is fulfilling the prophecy that God said to Abraham, I'm gonna make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. I'm gonna bless you. I'm gonna help you bear good fruit. But those of us that know the Old Testament, we know that didn't quite go the way that God had planned it. If you look at Jeremiah 2.21, God says through Jeremiah, I planted you, Israel, a choice vine entirely of pure seed. How have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? The Lord didn't find the fruit he was looking for in Israel. And so Jesus is saying, I am the true vine. It's a scandalous statement to those people. He's saying that he is the true Israel. I will bear, help you bear the fruit that God desires. Now, does this mean that God is opposed to his people? Not necessarily. He's just saying that I have sent my son to help them bear the fruit that they couldn't do on their own. I'm going to help them accomplish what they cannot accomplish. And if you stay connected to me, I will help you bear that fruit that God desires. If you look at verse two and three, he removes every branch 
in me that bears no fruit. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes to make it bear more fruit. You have already been cleansed by the word that I've spoken to you. About, oh gosh, it was a long time ago, about 15 years ago, uh, my wife and I went to Napa Valley, Northern California. And so we toured all these places. And, and I know North Carolina, we're trying to like have our own little wine country thing. And I've been to some of these wineries too. We're not quite up there with the big boys yet, but uh, we're doing our best. But Napa Valley is pretty impressive. And one guy gave us a tour of all the, you know, the acres of grapes you see everywhere. And he, and he told me, if, I, if we don't prune these vines, within two or three years, they will um, revert back to their wild nature. And they'll just cover everything. And then the grapes will be terrible, and they won't actually produce anything of substance. You have to prune them to make them grow what you desire. So Jesus is saying, the Father will remove every branch in me that bears no fruit. The Father does the growing. He does the pruning. He prunes those that are in him, not people that are not Christians. He's saying that, that, that the Father prunes those that are in him. Every branch that gets, is dead, it gets taken out. But every branch that's growing, he says, I will prune it to make it bear more fruit. I will help it grow. When things are going well for you with your relationship with God, he's saying, I will, the Father will prune you more so that you'll bear more fruit. It's that principle of to whom much is given, much will be received. Uh, if, you have, if you're faithful with a little, God will bless you with more. It's that sort of reciprocity thing. It's, it's a real principle, not only of our personal lives, spiritually, but also in business or your whatever, that when things are on an upward trajectory and things are going well, that's the time to make positive change, right? Not when things are cratering and the wheels are falling off. It's too late. You can't make the positive change you desired. It's the time to prune is when things are growing, when things are developing. It's this principle that, that the Lord actually chastens or challenges those that he loves. He disciplines his children because he loves them. In Hebrews chapter 12 the author of Hebrews writes about this extensively, and I wanted to read a few verses from that because it, it typifies this idea of God's pruning or discipline helps yield more harvest um, in our lives, and it's Hebrews 12, 6 through 11. He, the psalmist, or the Hebrew author, starts by quoting Proverbs 3, 11 and 12, which says, the Lord disciplines those whom he loves. He chastises every child whom, whom he accepts. Endure trials for the sake of discipline. God is treating you as children. For what child is there whom a parent does not discipline? If you do not have that discipline in which all children share, then you are illegitimate and not as children. Moreover, we had human parents to discipline us and we respected them. Should we not be even more willing to be subject to the father of spirits and live? Discipline always seems painful rather than pleasant at the time, but later it yields fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So you see that principle of pruning actually develops more spiritual fruit in our lives as God, we, we allow ourselves to be dependent on the gardener to shape and mold our lives. And then Jesus says these next few verses about abiding, things that initially sound confusing and that we'll explain. Abide in me as I abide in you, just as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine neither can you unless you abide in me i am the vine you are the branches those who abide in me and i in them bear much fruit because apart from me you can do nothing he's really saying healthy things grow 
without any extra effort from the thing itself. If you simply are healthy, good things happen. If you stay connected to the, to the vine, to the soil, to the source, things just naturally grow. My family is from Pilot Mountain, my extended family, my dad's side, so they are all tobacco farmers, all right? Family of nine, uh, a farmhouse, no toilet, like they would just go off the porch. I don't mean, I mean, it's like, I was like, what? Is that, you serious? Like they were just like real hardworking people. They understood how to farm, how to get it done. All their yards just had like all sorts of food and trees, things that you could just harvest all the time. My Aunt Helen was a remarkable woman um, and before she passed away, I visited her in March one year, and she made me the best cornbread I've ever had in my life. That's, just, that's an aside. I'll throw that out there. And then her garden was producing tomatoes and onions in March. I was like, what sort of magi- magic is this? She said, look over the side, and you'll see. I looked over the side, and what was on the ground? Uh, straight from the animal to the ground, pure manure. And it was just like, Oh, and she looked at me and she said, healthy things grow. If it's healthy, it'll grow. If you have healthy plants, things will grow. I can honestly say with great thankfulness to God that this church is growing. This church has been growing for the past many months, for for the past 18 months to a few years. We are, in fact, growing. We see more people come. We're going to have nearly 15 people join the church in a few weeks. We've had dozens of people join the church last year. God has blessed us with new equipment and all these things we didn't anticipate. It's exciting, right? It's, it's incredible because everyone wants to be a part of something that's growing, that's healthy. We want to be a part of that because if a church isn't growing, it might be dying. So all living things grow. Church Growth is connected to church health. And when you have a lot of health people growing spiritually in Christ, churches naturally grow because the church isn't a business. The church is a body. We're a living organism. And when living organisms are connected to their source, they grow. They naturally grow. Like for those of us that are parents, we don't have to tell our kids to grow up, right? Sometimes they grow up too fast, a lot. My children wake up, and I'm pretty convinced they grew six inches overnight. I'm about sure. I'm like, are we seeing eye to eye soon? Like, I don't have to tell them to grow. They just do it. Now, if they didn't grow, then you step in, and maybe you want to help, and you want to work on that and make sure that they're healthy and all that. The same principle is for those that are in Christ. God the Father is committed to your spiritual growth. That's what Jesus is saying here. He doesn't want to remove people from the vine, but he will if, you're not, if it's not help working, but God is committed to helping you be fruitful. The church is designed to grow, amen? The church is designed to be healthy. God wants it to grow. He wants it to prosper. He wants us to stay connected to him and grow because if a church isn't growing, like I said, it could be dying. And then at the end of that, Jesus says, apart from me, you can't do nothing. And then you read that and you go, what's he talking about? Because there's plenty of people in the world who do lots of great things apart from Jesus. We went to the moon, you can make millions of dollars, you can, you can climb Mount Everest, you can do all these things. What does he mean like you can do nothing apart from me? He's really saying there's one thing people can't do of our own ability. We cannot bear spiritual fruit. It's the spirit of God does that in us and through us. Apart from him, we can't do that when we're disconnected to, from the vine. 
but when you're connected to the vine, he'll bear that fruit in your lives. So the real question is, how do you stay connected to the vine, right? What does abiding mean? Really, it means to remain, to stay, to be dependent. I would also say abiding could be a reorganization of your ultimate priorities, a daily reorientation toward a focused goal. I'll put it this way, another way, is to start your day in the word and not the world. Like, I have, we all have phones. My phone is my alarm clock, right? It's probably a lot of yours. And as soon as I wake up, I'm tempted to pick it up and start just like scrolling through Facebook or something like that, right? And you start your day with your mind and your heart there, right? And lately, God has been convicting me and saying, don't do that. The first thing you should do is just, just pray, read some scripture, something. Start your day in that focus. That's the abiding nature. It's like you're choosing to put your thoughts and orientation toward God and abide in him throughout your day. Now, that doesn't mean you're in a meeting or something and you just kind of space out and you just say, excuse me, I have to abide for a moment. Like, and like and everyone's like, uh, you got to do your presentation, you know. No, like you have to, you know, there's a little bit of multitasking going on here with abiding, but it is a daily reorientation of a preferred goal of ultimate priority. And it does take a bit of childlike faith, a childlike innocence and trust and dependence. Stuart Briscoe was one of the uh, great preacher in the 20th century. He traveled to post-World War II Poland during what was then the Cold War. And he's, this ministry had given him some places to preach. So they would drive him around to like churches and things like that to preach different, different people. He said one night they drove me out into the middle of nowhere in Poland to a dilapidated old building and they said, uh, go in here, there's a hundred young people waiting to hear what you have to say to them. And Stuart Briscoe said, I'd prepared a message on John chapter 15 about abiding in Christ. And so um, I walk in the room and there's a hundred people and I started speaking through an interpreter for about 10 minutes. Then all of a sudden the lights go out, pitch black, couldn't see anything. The interpreter said, just keep going, we're used to it. The lights go out all the time, just keep, keep talking. He said, I kept talking for 20 minutes in the dark. I couldn't see anything about abiding in Christ. Then all of a sudden, as it does with those sorts of countries, the lights just come back on. And as the lights come back on, he said, what I saw just blew my mind. All 100 people were kneeling on the ground. And he continued his message. He continued to talk about abiding, and he prayed. And then it was over. The next day, he saw a man that was there. And the man said, we kept kneeling for the remainder of the night because we had never heard anyone talk to us about abiding in Christ before. So we wanted to make sure we got it right. What a beautiful picture of childlike trust, faith, dependence, innocence. I mean, there's very much an aspect of abiding in Christ and prayer and trust that involves childlike faith. Jesus said in the book of Matthew, if you don't have faith like a child, you cannot see the kingdom. You just won't see it. Because if you're trusting in your, own, in your own ability to bear your own fruit, to be your own vine, if you will, you're not going to get it. You're not going to taste what he's trying to give you. Because when you're a kid, like last week we talked about Sunday school stories we loved as children, remember? And uh, when you're a kid, you have that just innate trust. You're like, Man, God can do anything. Like, God is awesome. And then you get older and we can lose some of that. And you think, oh, I'm an adult. I've got it all figured out now. Everything makes sense to me now that I'm an adult. I don't need to do that anymore. And we see the fallacy of that. Like, what? 
Of course we don't have it all figured out. There's actually strength in admitting your dependence on God. Because the older we get, we can be more prone to focus on building our own empires and bearing our own fruit and getting toward achievement and the childlike faith can wane and we lose that sense of dependence, of abiding in him. And it's important that we abide in in Christ, specifically in Jesus and not in Moses. And I'll explain what I mean, in Christ, not in Moses. Do you know how the greatest religious spirit-led movements of the gospel have, have started in history. They all have the same uh, things that have occurred. The founders of those movements would spend inordinate amount of time with Jesus. Hours, because they wanted to. Just spending time with God. Like look at John and Charles Wesley. Look at Billy Graham, the man who founded, who, the man who founded World Vision, Robert Pierce. He would pray throughout the night asking God to come through with this or with this. A man named Rees Howells, who you probably never heard of. He was, he was one of the greatest prayer warriors in history. And many times people believe his prayers helped shape World War II. There's a book called The Intercessor. You can read by Rees Howells. It's about him. Highly recommend you read that book. The great movements of God in history, William Booth founded the Salvation Army, Martin Luther, Mother Teresa, they all abided in Christ. And while they were doing nothing, Jesus bore all sorts of fruit, crazy amounts of fruit. They never could have done that on their own. Think Billy Graham was gonna sell at stadiums on his own ability? He would never admit to that. Of course it was God doing it. So that's how movements start, is when we spend more time with Jesus than we did before. But here's how movements die. When the followers of that movement begin to follow the founder more than Jesus himself. United Methodist Church, are you listening to me? When we get away from the vine, when we get away from following Jesus only, specifically, we put more of our trust in human beings, we're missing the point. I mean, we do need preachers, you need pastors, we need Christian leaders, of course, but I'm just a jar of clay, just like you, that's just saying, this power we have is not from me, but it's from God. So don't look at me, I'm just reflecting up to him. Every pastor should be that way. Every preacher should be that way. But here's what's happening. In America, a lot of preachers got book deals, they got millions of dollars, they got TV shows, They've got a lot of platform and a lot of influence, and some of them do it well, but some of them don't. And what's happening is people are trusting more in those people than they are trusting in the vine. And they're at the base of the mountain, and they're listening to Moses when they're getting the invitation to go up to the top and listen to God himself. We could be talking to God face to face, but we don't. When Jesus says, if you abide in me, You will bear much fruit. It is an invitation for him to say, I want to know you face to face. I want you to go to the top of that mountain and talk to me. Don't talk to Moses. Moses is just a guy like you. You can have intimacy with God, union with God. Not just a friendship, but a union. The inward part of your being, God says, when you search for me with all your heart, he says, you will find me. So when he says, I want you to abide with me, I just want you to be close with me. 
because I'm, I'm, I'm already there. God's already bridged his half of the, the gap. And he waits for us to do the same. So before we come to the table this morning and celebrate communion, it would be just fitting to have a few moments just to breathe and to take time to abide in him. And just to let our scattered senses reorient themselves on the presence of God. Amen? Because we need that in our days. We, that's what people want from church. When I come to church, I want to encounter God, right? That's what we all want. And when we do this, when we create space for the Holy Spirit to work and move, there's such a stillness with the Lord when he is present. He brings, he's, he's called the Prince of Peace. But there's a spirit of peace he just brings when he is truly present. So let us now go before God in prayer and just have a few moments of abiding. Lamentations 2:22 Because of the Lord's great love we are not consumed for his compassions never fail they are new every morning Father God would you remind us now of the ways that maybe we've sinned recently maybe through our own negligence through our own weakness or through our own deliberate fault remind us God I take a moment now to just confess my sins to you God of grace and truth thank you that when we confess our sins You are faithful and just, forgiving and purifying us from all unrighteousness. You will remove our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. Though our sins are as scarlet, you will make us white as snow. Thank you, God, that when we were lost, you found us. And when we were ashamed, you forgave us. You nailed the accusations against us to the cross. We receive your forgiveness now.